three-word title. I'm Vita James, and every episode, I read a short story by writer of color. Because this is the third episode and I'm superstitious, I'm reading a story I wrote titled Storm King. You can find this story in the winter 2020 issue of New England Review. Vita James is a New Yorkan social worker and writer from Brooklyn. She was a 2018 Vona Voices Fellow and has work appearing or forthcoming in New England Review, Pank Magazine, and was recently nominated for Pushcart Prize for her work in Epiphany. She's currently writing a work of abolitionist fiction. Storm King When Baby was born, she was crying, crying, and just a little blob, a grub, but I loved her. Poor Baby that winter didn't have a bed even, just a cardboard box at first, and I put in the things I saved when I was pregnant. A little blanket blue and purple that I found, and then I put her in a drawer. It made me so sad to see this baby on the floor, just crying on the rug, and I was afraid to sleep in bed next to her like I would push her off of the bed or roll over on her. I was so nervous about her back then. I lost my job at the store being pregnant, and I was on my own, and George wouldn't give me any money. And he didn't even notice that we'd empan de comer, and he ignored my calls. I told him, your baby needs you, and he said, I never wanted this baby, it's not my problem. That's what he said when I told him I was pregnant. My mother said to give him some time and he would come around, but I realized we would starve without him, so I went to the court and I told him he wasn't paying. Before she was born, he called me a lot, nonstop calls and messages telling me terrible things, saying terrible things about baby before she was even born. And when I said he would love her and he would have to take care of her, he said, it's not my problem. He said that all the time. Sometimes he would come over and say, be reasonable, get rid of it, call Planned Parenthood. And then I would get really mad and cry and say, kill my baby, what's wrong with you? And I said terrible things to him too, calling him names, saying he wasn't a real man. I yelled at him too many times. I can't say he was at fault all the time for fighting. One time, after we'd split up, he came over and was being really sweet to me. It felt like we were in love again. I was so happy to have him back in the house, being all sweet, his voice soft and low. He told me I looked good, that the weight looked good on me, and he took me to the couch even though I was big and pregnant. The couch was brown and scratchy and I had these purple-pink stretch marks on my stomach, but he didn't care. He said I was fine. And he was taking off my clothes quickly and I told him I loved him and he nodded. He was frantic when he kissed me, pressing his mouth against mine hard. When we first met, I'd put on a matching suit, a pair of green sweatpants and a green sweatshirt and gold earrings, and I put my hair up high in a ponytail with gel, and I looked good, like a lime candy, all hard and shiny. Back then I walked around talking to everyone, and liked to see men look at me and say things about my body, and women would be jealous if I weren't so kind to them too, talking to them all the time and complimenting their children or their food. And I met George right there on the street. He ran up behind me while I was walking, right up next to me, and told me I was the prettiest girl around and would I let him buy me dinner. I said, maybe. I saw him the very next day in the very same spot, and he had flowers for me. Two big hydrangeas that I know he picked out of someone's front garden by a stoop, and they look silly, these two big flowers, almost as big as my head. But the only time I had flowers before was when I graduated high school and when I got my appendix out. He gave me the flowers and asked me to go to dinner with him, and I said, maybe. He took me to a restaurant where I ate half a chicken just like that with my hands, and he told me he liked a woman with an appetite. And soon after I cooked dinner for him, I made rice with gandules and chicken with avocado and tostones, and I didn't even eat it. I wasn't hungry after having tasted while I was cooking it the whole time, putting in the achiote and adobo and the rice, tasting it, and it was the perfect shade of yellow. Back when I met him, I was going for walks all around the neighborhood, up toward the community garden with the flags and shiny red pinwheels where there was always sitting an old man in white clothes. And then by the African market, which was a bit empty, people eating meals behind their sheds. And I stopped to say hello to a salesman who was always listening to a tape, practicing for a citizenship test and selling fabrics with big prints on them, yellow and purple and blue stripes. And sometimes I'd buy cloth from him, planning to sew this or that. I was saying hi to everyone, to the lady and her daughter who sold those tamalarajas, and the jewelry man by the supermarket where I bought my earrings where they were laid out gold against red velvet. And he always gave me cheaper ones because he said I'm pretty. I did used to be pretty. Even before I got pregnant, George confused me all the time, like he was doing things but then telling me I was crazy, I was making them up. 
He had a little flip phone that he hid from me, but then got angry listening to my machine over and over asking me, who is this? Who is this? Holding my phone up and pointing at the machine. That's my cousin, I said. Or that's for my boss, George. And he got mad and slammed the phone down and broke the round part off the bottom of it, accusing me of fucking my boss like I would want to touch that fat old man who was cutting my hours all the time. And when I started crying, he would make these noises that said unbelievable and make fun of me or slam the door on his way out and not come home all night. Or sometimes I didn't know why he was upset. He would get quiet and not say anything to me all day, not say a word for hours. If I asked him what was wrong, he would just lift his eyebrows and not say anything. So I started to yell at him and push him, anything to get him to react to me. Once I took a book out of his hands and threw it across the room and knocked over a vase, and he just laughed while I cleaned it up. And the next day, it was like nothing happened at all, and I wondered, did I make it up? Am I starting something? He would say, don't start. So did I start? And if I asked him, where were you? Or asked him to take me out, he'd tell me we were having a nice time and I ruined it. He'd say, don't start. After we split up in our women's group, the maestra showed us this chart, a circle with arrows pointing all around, and it was like honeymoon stage, tension stage, fighting stage, all in a circle on the paper. I remember because all the women in the group were like, yes, yes, this is exactly how it is. He buys me presents after, or he takes me to dinner, and then slowly he gets mad like a boiling pot, and then it's a fight all over again. And some of the women cried, and they said they knew it was like this, and they had timed it, and the time between was getting shorter and shorter. But it wasn't like that with me and George. He just stayed mad, and things never went back to the way they were. He hit me, he pushed me, he pulled my hair, he told me to get rid of the baby, and then he left. It was like in my country when the lights go out and suddenly it's dark and you walk around lighting candles and waiting. Before I met George, I'd never needed anything. It was me who helped my mom. I graduated high school and she didn't. I got myself a job. I knew how to talk to people. I had lots of friends before him. Guys and girlfriends. I would go out dancing all night and not drink even a little because I had fun talking to people and being out of the house, being all over the city. I could be up all night just from having fun, being around people, having so much energy inside that bubbled and bubbled when I was out. One time my girlfriends brought me to a party in a basement deep in Brooklyn. It was just a couple dollars to get in and it was an actual basement, some kind of factory. The walls were old brick, practically falling down. But the music was so good and there were all kinds of strange people there in wild costumes, men dressed as women with flowers in their hair and all that under blue and purple lights and foggy sweet air. I wore a short little dress that was silver and sparkly like a Christmas ornament. And when I danced, I matched the disco ball and the dance floor was slippery with shiny pieces of paper or some piece of art had fallen apart and all over everyone so we were all shining that night from everywhere. And I talked to so many people and they told me stories about places they were from all over the world and country, places I'd never even learned the names of like Cape Verde and they were all really kind, and everyone was just having a good time, drinking cheap bread punch, and the men weren't even dancing up on me or trying to touch me, really. It was just a completely different party. Back then, people could smoke cigarettes inside, and when I came home at the light of dawn, I didn't care that I was sitting on a subway in a sparkly dress with hair that smelled like smoke. After a short while of seeing each other, he wanted me to, and asked me, and asked me, so I moved in with him. My mother wanted us to be married first, but since he was older than me, she was okay with it and she thought he could provide for me more than she could, even though by then I was working at the store with enough hours that I was bringing in money. Moving in was good too. He loved my body and got on his knees and kissed me all over like worship. We watched stupid movies together and decorated the house with curtains I sewed myself, ones with red and white checks on them. A small apartment not far from where we met with a little kitchen and window that looked into a garden that had old ladies working in there on the weekend. And he told me I was beautiful every day, all the time, how beautiful I was, how he didn't deserve me, how lucky we were to have each other. He brought home flowers and sang songs to me and made love to me, tasted me like I was the sweetest dulce melting in his mouth. But then things were getting worse and worse and we even broke up a couple of times. I went back to my mother's and she sat me down and told me, this is the way men are and you can't trust them, they are all this way. And then she asked me if I was treating him right, feeding him, taking care of him. She was saying this in her small voice, her shy way, so little, and I thought about my father and how much she missed him and how she basically shrank down into a tiny woman without him. And I thought maybe she was right, I was getting lazy bones. He wasn't as romantic with me, but I wasn't as romantic toward him either. I was annoyed with him and snapping at him sometimes and making a big deal out of nothing. 
So when we got back together, I tried really hard. I put on perfume for him that smelled like jasmine oil and salt, and I wore velour sweatpants that made my ass look really good. I smiled more. I walked with a slither like a snake leaning over him and trying to be sexy. But it was the same between us, like all of a sudden we didn't speak each other's language anymore. Around then, there was a party at a cultural event, a museum or something that her girlfriend was taking me to. She said it was free. I put on a dress that was a bunch of swirling colors, purple and white and black, and it was a swishy fabric around my legs, a dress for spinning around and around. But once we got there, I got nervous. Everyone looked beautiful and young, with glowing brown skin and futuristic haircuts, and they were all talking to each other, and I felt like I couldn't talk. It was like a cat got my tongue, and I looked pale, and my dress looked stupid, the colors all wrong, and the shape not sexy or boxy, just old lady in between. So I left without saying goodbye to her, and she got mad, so I stopped calling her. I didn't want to hear it. My old self before George felt like a silly girl, and my friends had silly priorities, and now I was old and tired, even though it had only been a couple of years we were together at that point. After that, I was home all the time and said Ada for no reason, really. I'd started getting nervous being outside. Our apartment was like a box, getting smaller and smaller, but I couldn't move one way or another, and I was getting smaller too. Like I would go outside and find eyes everywhere, eyes I couldn't look into, feeling jumpy to see people and feel their eyes and thoughts on me. So when I got pregnant, it was like a part of being home all the time. It wasn't on purpose, and it wasn't an accident either. I just told myself it was up to God. When it was time to Dada Lucy, he wasn't there. He didn't even call back, and it was just my mother, and she held my hand through it. I don't really remember most of it, bits and pieces before they gave me the drugs and after. Everything in the hospital was green-blue, and the nurses were wearing pink, and they talked to me in high voices, excited for me, even though I was scared. My mother was quiet, just holding my hand and telling me to be strong and telling me it would be over soon and telling me I wouldn't remember the worst of it. When baby was born, she was just a little thing, and she opened her mouth and yawned and stretched and needed me. She lay on my chest like a little slug, and I fell in love with her. There was a lady the hospital sent me, a white girl who also looked like a boy, and she massaged me and the baby with some hippie oils and told me in flat Spanish that I was strong and having a baby meant I was strong enough to do anything. I decided she was right, and I was strong, and after that I put George in the birth certificate and I had the court send him notice for child support. When I got pregnant, I knew the very moment. I felt it in the Matadis right away, and then my period didn't come, but my breasts were tender and my hair was getting long and I didn't get sick at all. It's true what they say about glowing, my skin never looked better even though it was winter and the street corners were freezing brown-gray slush. And I started walking all around again, stepping over puddles and talking to baby inside. My hair was thick and shiny and I was beautiful again. He was suspicious. When I told him I was pregnant, it was the first time with the back of his hand like an afterthought. With the child support stuff, he started to argue for custody and we spent time in court a lot. I'd put an order of protection on him, but he was granted custody because he's the father paying child support and he never hurt baby. But I also wanted him to be in her life. He's her father and maybe he would love her too and stop being so angry all the time. So we got her every other weekend and we met at the precinct because the court said it was safe for us to meet there with the order of protection and all. The police were kind to me. They saw me from behind the glass at their desks how he kept me waiting for hours sometimes to pick up baby or bring her back. And half the time it was his mother who brought her back and she'd barely look at me just telling baby how good she was while she was unpacking her things and how she'd miss her and how she'd be back home soon as if my house wasn't home. She'd always dress baby in some outfit the opposite of what I liked, something loud with bright cartoons, and sometimes would get into the same stupid argument about my not letting her pierce baby's ears like she didn't understand that baby could pierce her own ears when she was older. One time George asked me to step outside the precinct and he sighed and said this isn't how he imagined a family with cops everywhere and that we had to stop fighting each other all the time and how I had to give him a break and he was trying. And he started crying right there outside the precinct on the stone steps saying he wanted to be a good father and he couldn't do it with the order. How could he be a good father with an order of protection? He looked older and serious and sad. I remember he hadn't shaved and had this little mustache double. I'd never seen him cry before, so I said maybe. 
Not too long after baby was born, the court put something on his record about not paying, so he stormed into my house, and what he did there, that's when I got the order of protection. It was when things clicked for me, and I knew it was about me and baby. I told him to shh, baby was sleeping, and he told me he didn't care about no damn baby. It probably wasn't even his baby, and then we were fighting and fighting. He called me a whore, and he was hitting me on my arms and stomach, and I grabbed a wooden spoon, and I was trying to get him in the eye, and then he was choking me there on the kitchen floor, so close to baby in the living room, and he told me he'd kill me. Me and George never got back together after that, not really, even though I prayed for it. I begged him. I was embarrassed because by then my friends knew he had left me and had hurt me, and they told me what a piece of shit he was, and I didn't want to tell them everything so they wouldn't hate him, so they'd accept him when he came back to me. He started calling all the time after that, violating the order, threatening me if I didn't drop the order. The social worker at the group told me this was a violation in itself and he could be arrested, but what good would it do baby to have her daddy locked up? My mother said she wasn't sure that maybe he would change. Maybe if I dropped the order, he'd be less mad. And I didn't know what to do. I felt stuck either way. I was sitting on the floor of the living room with baby. She was starting to walk by then, wearing a little dress my mom sewed her yellow with dandelions all over it. And I just asked her what she thought I should do. And she said, dah. And that was that. The line to get into family court was so long. Everyone standing outside, shuffling their feet. Meanwhile, lawyers walked past. They didn't have to wait because white people don't wait in line. Wait, wait, wait is everything in La Corte. Even before we saw the judge, we were all waiting outside in the hallway. And George was there, and he was looking healthy and fine. He'd gained weight and had this belly that made me think of my father and uncles. He came over and smiled at me, and I remembered I would kiss the wrinkles on the corner of his eyes when we were lying in bed or on the couch, murmuring things to each other, and it had been a long time since he smiled at me, wrinkles at the corners of his eyes. He said he missed me, and he wanted to talk to me about the order of protection, that it's keeping us apart, and he wanted to take care of baby, too. The social worker came in, her hair was shining yellow, and I knew she didn't have to wait in line outside. She saw me talking to George and brought me upstairs to an office painted orange that had a room inside with kids playing, and she said, it's safer to wait for the judge up here. You see George, I asked her. Isn't he handsome? She made a face and said she didn't notice. When our case was called up, it was a big gray room, and the judge was an old white man who was bald and looked like a crow in his robes. I had an interpreter who was a round older man and as short as me, and the public lawyer who looked bored. George had a lawyer, too. The judge presented our forms and said some things, and the interpreter told me the judge was asking if anyone was forcing me today to drop the order, and I paused. I was deciding if George was forcing me, and I thought maybe he was. There was a voice hissing, saying, Think of all the times he's hurt you, pushed you in the walls, and hit your face and made a mark. And I was also thinking about how things used to be, like when he made me small presents out of paper, and when he would hold me when I woke up with nightmares, and how excited I was to make a family with him. Maybe he'd be less angry with me if I just give him what he wants. I knew my mom was there on one side, and the social worker was on the other, even though she pretended not to judge the situation. I thought I'd give George another chance, and as I was thinking all this and looking down at my hands, the judge kept asking me if anyone was forcing me, and he was getting angry. So I said, no, no one is forcing me, and the interpreter looked at me sadly and patted my hand. Then George talked, but all I heard was that high-pitched sound you get in your ear sometimes. The order of protection was lifted, and the social worker met me, and she had wet eyes but was pretending not to judge. So I told her, it's okay. I know what I'm doing. She walked me to the train and paid for my metro card and told me to take care of myself. Back when we were in love, it was like music, where someone sings I love you with my very soul, oh three Bonnie and Clyde, bachata, all that love, love stuff. In the early days, he called me every day and every night and told me I was his one and only, that he couldn't live without me, and that he wanted us to move in together right away, and I said I would have to ask my mother first. One of our first dates, he took me to a museum upstate. It was this big field with sculptures all around it, and we walked through the field all day. The sculptures were as big as houses, some of them, and one was a giant disc, rusty-colored and tilted. Looking at it, we joked about white people art, but I couldn't take my eyes off of it, and it made me feel big and small inside at the same time, like when I was a kid and there were meteor showers in my country. And I looked at George, and I felt warm, too, and so thankful to have a man. 
For lunch, I'd brought a little picnic, laid out a sheet from my house that was white with little green flowers. It was old and some threads were loose, but I sat on that part to hide it, and I had made sandwiches with platano and beef. After, he lay in my lap and fell asleep, and I brushed his hair back from his forehead and looked at all the families wandering around the sculptures, and I thought, this is the life I didn't know I wanted. Thank you for listening, and please continue to support Writers of Color. For more information on the writers in this podcast and the presses that give home to their stories, visit the podcast Twitter at 3WordTitle.